Hi, Transitions, A Journey of Joy. What we got today is a book review by John Dosworth. Facing Transitions Without Fear. John Dosworth lives in Hamilton, Ohio with his wife, Letty. They enjoy spending time with their son and daughter and with their two grandsons. John continues to be a partner in United Heartland Insurance Agencies. Introduction. A Journey of Joy. Why this book? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord God, for another book review, Lord God. My wish is that you be in it, Lord, that it you'll be your will, Lord, that we will hear you in these pages, that you will give us some form of encouragement, Lord, so we can praise you and thank you and be amazed in how you work in individual people. The most important thing in an individual's life is having meditation with you, Lord, having a moment with you, praising you and thanking you, and seeing you work in someone's life that we don't know. A witness, Lord, of the Holy Spirit, a witness of your fatherhood, a witness of your faithfulness, your mercy and your kindness, Lord. We acknowledge you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that we are in it to win it. You have made us just like you in Jesus, for Jesus and by Jesus. Amen. Transitions of Journey of Joy. Why this book? I didn't realize it at the time, but it started over 15 years ago when I began to journal each day during my quiet times with the Lord. During those morning quiet times, I began to record the thoughts that came to me as I read and meditated the scriptures. But before going any further into my journaling journey, it may be helpful to know that what motivated me to step onto the path in the first place. Part one transitions deals with the background for my journey. It was during this time I was, that I was blessed to discover just how real God's word was in helping me to deal with the emotional burdens of difficult period of transition. For the first time in my life, God's word became alive to me. I lean upon it and experience how the Lord used it to guide and empower me to cope with, with my personal struggles. If you are one of those folks who is currently involved in a transition in your life, perhaps you might identify with the doubts and fears that were my companions during those years. Those doubts and fears led me to probe deeper into God's word on a daily basis. The thoughts that were written down in my journal during those morning quiet times became the meditations that are shared in part three. Despite encouragement from close friends, I had always dismissed the thought of publishing of any of this material until it was suggested to me, if you feel that God has so richly blessed you through those morning meditations, then why would you, he not use them to bless others as well? That made sense, so here we are. 
An appropriate title for this book could very well be The Meditations of a Sinful Band. The experiences and meditations that I share are evidence of how God's grace can work through someone like me. I am a working guy. Sometimes my cash flow gets real clogged up. At times my emotions fly off the handle. At times what I am either saying or doing could cause others to look at me and wonder if I'm actually a Christian man. So I have humbly, hopefully, embarked on a course of sharing my experience during the major transitions in my life and the resulting meditations that follow. I have tried to be sensitive to God's leading in this endeavor, as only he knows who the folks are who might benefit from reading through them. Perhaps someone along the line, someone going through an unexpected transition in their life, might be able to identify with the thought or meditation that is shared here in a way that brings encouragement. If that will be the case, we can thank the Lord for it. If you are one of those folks, I sincerely hope that this experience will bring you even greater joy to you in your walk with him than it, it has given me. John Dosworth, 2012. All right, here is part one, transitions, and then part two, journaling journey. That has part three, sharing the meditations. Part five, or part, no, excuse me, part four, the personal reflections. The Waver Tree, the conclusion. Hmm. All right, all right. Let's go ahead and move to uh, part one. The background for the journaling journey. Transition. We are all born with hopes and dreams even though we may not realize it. I believe that there are among the mediums by which God makes known to us the purpose and plans that he has for our lives. A lot is said about knowing God's plan for your one's life. How many times have you heard someone say, or even said to yourself, I wish I knew what God's plan was for my life. My personal view of this idea centers around two thoughts. One is that in order for any of us to know what God's plan is for our lives, we have to communicate with him. Think about it. How can any of us know someone's plan for what we're supposed to be do without any situation, be it our parents, our employers, whoever, unless we communicate with them, unless we listen to them. Sound almost too mundane, doesn't it? And yet how often do we make the time to spend with our Heavenly Father, quietly listening to what he's saying to us, as opposed to our doing all the talking. Secondly, I have always believed that part of knowing God's plan for our lives is simply in recognizing what we have strong desires to do, a particular thing, to pursue a particular path. Does it make sense that a loving God who loves us so much that he sent his only son to die for us? would have a plan for our lives that involves something that we absolutely hated to do? Really? Does that make sense? 
it doesn't to me. If you have a desire to pursue a certain occupational career path, and it is an honest and ethical pursuit, then I can honestly believe that desire was God-given. That is the starting point for my life journey. In compliance with God's plan for my life, for many folk, this could involve many different careers. But the same conditions would apply, whether it is one career or several. Following God's plan involves doing something that we really want to do. These thoughts provide the background for how I arrived at the career that I know now that God wanted me to pursue as part of his plan for my life. Since my earlier, teen, earlier teens, I had always known that I wanted to be an independent insurance agent. That's right, an independent insurance agent. Now really, John, how many folks grow up with a burning desire for that career? Doesn't sound very glamorous or exciting, does it? Certainly be the physician, a college professor, a minister of the gospel, a law enforcement officer, a firefighter, or any number of other occupations would be more glamorous. But this endeavor was appealing to me because it offered the opportunity to work in a field that while growing up I had become familiar with and had become come to really like it. My dad had been a life insurance agent with the Prudential Insurance Company, and it just seemed to be osmosis that his enthusiasm for his work was caught up by his son as he was growing up. Even more appealing was that in being an independent agent, I would have the opportunity to operate my own agency. I did not want to work for a big company. I wanted to fly my own plane. This desire was so deeply ingrained in me that I could not escape it. Over the years, I tried to put us put it aside, but it would never go away. The desire remained my passion for this day. I share all this to provide background for the motivating for the career change that I made in 1987 and for all the fears, apprehensions, and victories that grew out of that motivation. It was during the early years of this transition into my own business when I began to see for the first time just how alive God's work could be in me, my everyday life. During that time, my morning scripture meditation provided the platform for my journaling. On the timeline of history horizon, it seems that we are now in a period of time that is characterized by career changes for many people. In fact, this period may well involve more folks going through transitions in their lives than any other time in recent history. So my friends, if you are facing a period of transition in your own life, if you had come through to one of those forks in the road that you never thought you would ever come to, if you are faced with the challenges that you never dreamed that would encounter, then perhaps some of what is shared from this book will relate to where you are and will provide some measures of encouragement. What joy that would bring to my heart. Transitions, the tip of the sword. Ephesians 6.17 Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The dream of having my own insurance policy has been a part of my career mindset since my teenage years. It would not go away. It was as deeply embedded in me as the blood in my veins. It seemed to always be at the back of my mind 
during every business transaction. It seems to be especially wrong, strong one evening at the drive home from a nighttime client visit. Wondering about it always centered on the how. How would I ever be able to make it, it come out about? <clears throat> how could it ever happen? Many were the times when I asked myself, is this just some kind of crazy dream? This was no reflection of, on the family that I worked for during those early years in the insurance business. They were kind and generous people. I have said many times that I look forward to being to work 99% of the time during those years from 1964 to 1987. <clears throat> Perhaps the, the, their cast the best reflection on that family. Of course, this contributed to my confusion about er, ever leaving that position and starting over again. Many were the times when I remember myself of the good things about being with those folks. Why then would I ever even consider leaving? At times, the back and forth of this nearly drove me crazy. But a God-given dream will not die. It is not supposed to be squelched. Even though I became more convinced over the course of that time that this was a God-given dream, even those thoughts were all too often clouded over my confusion. One summer, 1985, over breakfast at a friendly restaurant, something happened. The impact of the event was so strong that I can almost feel it to this day. I was meditating in the Psalms when the impact of the words of Psalm 40 Verses 1, 2, 3, and 4 flooded over me as they were being read by the angels standing beside me. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slim pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock. He gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear, put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. At that moment, I knew, I knew for certain that my dream would become a reality. I think when I left the restaurant that morning, my feet were on the ground, but I am not certain of that because my spirit had been walking on a cloud. In the midst of that experience, I found myself asking the obvious question. How? How was it going to happen? But the amazing thing was on the moment of how, it didn't matter. It really didn't. Knowing that it was going to happen was enough. Somehow part of that knowing was the assurance that the how of it would come along eventually. How great it was the knowing was so strong that the how didn't matter. I was so excited that I could hardly contain myself. The Holy Spirit used use those first four verses in Psalm 40 to speak to me, to reassure me that my dream was going to become a reality. The tip of the sword of God's Spirit touched the inside of my heart in a way that only the Lord can do. And you know what? Sure enough, over the months that followed, the how of it did come along one step at a time. One step of faith at a time. Oh, how many, many times have I said to myself since then, why do you continue to run ahead of the Lord when he has shown you so vividly what it means to trust him one step at a time? Let's go ahead and read that scripture again. Uh, Psalm 40, verses 1 through 4. 
I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on the rock. He gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Again, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Again, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me. He heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and miry. He set my feet on a rock. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. He lifted me out of the slimy pit out of the mud and mire, he set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. Amen. This, uh, this chapter reminds me of when I was in Las Vegas and the red convertible broke down well, it was having trouble from the factory, the uh, spark plugs or something. So we took it in, in the shop, and we had to wait a couple hours in this kindly restaurant in Las Vegas. We're visiting my sister who's sick. 
and we're in the restaurant and everything seemed to be going wrong, right? We're short of funds, running on credit cards, truck messages. I used to be a mechanic and I couldn't figure that car out. And my skills were up to date. I didn't have any tools or anything. And um, we were in the restaurant and for about an hour, um, while the, the wife was busy with her phone, texting with her mother and talking with her, her kids, and her nephews and stuff, I got a pad and pencil and I took a scripture and I wrote the scripture over and over and over again. And something happened. I just felt like the how. I just realized after a while, I said, finish the script. I, I, I thought that my sister, my, other, my sister was going to come up from Los Angeles to Las Vegas too. And I, and I texted them and sure enough, they came and they picked us up and they took us to the Tosh Mahal, whatever it was, and we ate this beautiful dinner and I was, they just treated us with royalty. They came and picked us up in a BMW. It was uh, astonishing to see the word of God take flight. But the point I'm making, I must have been there an hour and then writing it over and over again. So that's what coffee shops are good for. If when you walk into a coffee shop, make sure you walk in there with a need, with something, and then break open the uh, meditation book and start writing a scripture. Like this one, Psalm 40, 1 through 4. And he says, I waited patiently for the Lord. So I was looking for the Lord's face. I was looking for his face. Then he turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet upon a rock. He gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. You see, right here, he put me in a place to stand, and then he put... He gave me some words to say that there were gonna, words that were going to save me and continue to reinforce the blessing of the Lord with a song. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Not just a hymn of praise of singing, but a hymn back to God to keep the conduit going, to keep the, to keep the communications open, to keep the power flowing. I put, he, he put a new song in my mouth, an anointed song, a hymn of praise, where to? Back to our God. Okay, so there was something that we had to do, that King David did. He sang his songs back to God in an assurance of the how it was taking place. Many was seer and fear. Wow, that's incredible. Many will see in fear. They will be obstruct. They will be amazed. Wonders and miracles to perform. Many will see in fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. So even making the Lord his trust and making a cake, it takes time, right? To meditate, making the Lord your trust. Amen.
Thank you so much for listening to me and today's meditation scripture. I read you a couple of small chapters on it. The next chapter is called The Tip of the Sword, Ephesians 6.17. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of, of God. Amen. Oh, that was the beginning of this of the scripture. I didn't even read that, huh? I, I skipped over that scripture. The tip of the sword. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. Thank you, guys. Appreciate you. I'll read more if we the Holy Spirit tells us to. May the Lord bless us and keep us. May the Lord make his face to shine upon us. And be gracious to us. May the Lord lift up his crowns and give us peace. Amen. Amen. Hello, family. We got a new book here for us. This is uh, Angels in the ER, inspiring true stories from an emergency room doctor. The doctor is Robert D. Leslie, MD. I'm going to jump to story number two. The least of these... Matthew 25, 35 to 36. Apparently, the doctor is Christian. So let's go ahead and listen up. <clears throat> A little treat here. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Matthew 25, 35, 36. The ER is a lot of things to a lot of people, but one of its most important functions is to serve as a safety net for those who have nowhere else to go. These are the people with no money, no insurance, no family, no friends. The ER offers the best and last chance they have for medical care. Sometimes it's the only place they have for care of any kind. It may be difficult to imagine someone who would consider the ER a place for comfort and companionship, but a good example of this occurs every Christmas. Most people will want to be at home or with family and friends, you think, and, and, and a trip to the ER would be an unpleasant necessity only because of the dire illness or injury. But that's not the case for a large and largely invisible part of our society. Mid to late morning, we see a steadily growing stream of people who show, should be elsewhere. They have no one else to spend Christmas Day with. Then whatever staff happens to have the misfortune of being on duty, they have no other place to find a holiday meal, bland and unexciting though it may be. And when you take the closer look and you try to imagine that life must be like for this man or woman, and especially the, that word you should speak or action you should take, it can get pretty uncomfortable. It was two in the afternoon in a cold and clear Tuesday in February. General, this is medic one over. I recognized Dent's voice and I picked up the ambulance telephone. Denton Roberts was one of those lead paramedics for the hospital's EMs. He was in his, his mid-30s, bright, aggressive, and his assessments in the field could always be trusted. He had attended Clemson for a couple of years and given some thought to applying at medical school. 
Once he started working as a paramedic, though, he knew he had found his niche. Medic one, this is Dr. Leslie. Go ahead. I responded. The receiver cracked right briefly. Doctor, we're bringing in a 65-year-old man with abdominal pain. This was a momentary pause. It's slim. That was all I needed to say. That's all he needed to say. I looked around the department to see what, which bed was available. Bring him to room two, Denton. Where's your ETA? About five, he said. Room two, it is. I placed the phone back in the cradle. Slim Brantley was one of our regulars. He had been a regular since I'd been working at Rock Hill General. Depending on the time of year, we might see him once or twice a week when the weather was good. He might go a month or so before calling an ambulance and coming to visit. We were in the midst of a cold snap, and this would be his third visit in the past nine days. Lori walked up to the nurse's station with a clipboard in her hand. We got a friend coming in, I told her. Slim, he, she guessed, placing the board on his rack. Yes, I answered. Again? Well, it's been two days, so I guess it's about time. Abdominal pain, she queried, knowing the answer. Bingo. Lori Davidson had been working in the ER for seven or eight years. She was the mother of three young children, a, a boy and two girls. She had a quiet, un, unassuming demeanor, and yet she displayed a confidence and compassion that immediately put our patients at ease. I was always glad when she was on duty. I'll get Slim's room ready, she told me. It requires significant effort to reach the relaxed status of ER regular. Not just anyone achieves this lofty appellation. At any given time, we probably have only 10 or 12 people in the circle. Just the fact that you come to the ER on a frequent basis does not necessarily make you a regular. We have drug seekers who do just that, but we don't consider them regulars. That's a whole different set of problems. Our regulars come to the ER over and over again with generality that some complain. It might be abdominal pain, as in Slim's case, or alcohol-related issues, or back pain or seizures. It can be any of a number of things, but each of our regulars has developed their own unique handle. For years, one of our favorites and most persistent regulars was a woman named Sarah May. She was in her 60s and lived with her older sister. At some point, she had become convinced that a root doctor practicing in Rock Hill, I'm not sure if he, he was board certified in that specialty, had put a snake in her. I think it was a black snake, but she was absolutely positive a snake was craw crawling around in her belly. She would write on the treasure, rub her up down and plead with us to get the snake out of her. What do you do with that? Invariably, she came to the ER by ambulance, usually a little after midnight. EMF would call in with, we have a woman here in no apparent distress. We're in 100 Pine Street. That's, that's all we all needed, her address. It's Sarah May again, would be an universal response. And in about 15 minutes, <clears throat> she would be rolling in the ER. Over the years, things changed with Sarah. On several occasions, I had her commit to a psychiatric hospital in Columbia for evaluation. After a week or two, she would end up back home. She didn't like the experience and didn't like being committed to a mental hospital. Apparently, they had as much luck getting the snake out as of her as we did. 
Eventually, she developed a practice of calling the ER before she called EMS. Is that Dr. Leslie on duty tonight, she, w- she would ask our secretary. When the answer was an affirmative, there would be a pause, a faint sigh. Oh, then, oh well, followed by a click, and no visit that night. But there were plenty of other visits for her, and her ticket to the ER was always the same. Slim Brantley, for whatever reason, had chosen abdominal pain as his handle, or maybe it had chosen him. Though he had been worked up as a numerous occasion, no pathology had ever turned up. He did have some real disease, though. Too much alcohol and three packs of cigarettes a day had taken their toll. He had very little lung reserve and had become very susceptible to pneumonia, and his heart had been giving him problems lately as shown by a recurrent episode of a rapid heartbeat with dizziness. Those things were real, but his abdominal pains were not. It was his free pass to the ER, and it got him in the door and into a bed, and in short order, he, it usually got him a warm meal. After an hour or two, his pain would be gone, and he would feel better, and he'd be ready to go home. I have often wondered where someone like Slim lives. One evening, Denton Roberts and I were sitting behind the nurse's station, for whatever reason, the conversation turned to Slim, and Denton told me about the time he had picked him up under a bridge. It had been midsummer, and Slim had construct, constructed a lean-to of cardboard boxes. Apparently, on the litter surrounding this impromptu abode, canned beans and ripple wine had been his substance for several days. On another occasion, he had been picked up in someone's garage where he was sleeping on a ratty caught between two broken-down lawnmowers. The owner of the house had provided this shelter in exchange for the few odd jobs Slim was still able to perform. I have no idea what he did when it was really cold. Apparently, he had some friends who would provide a place to stay until he made them mad or started a fire in the basement, and then they kicked him out. We tried everything with Slim, social service, charity organizations, and on many occasions, detox. We even had him committed to a mental hospital once, but nothing worked. It was never very long before he ended up back in the ER. And here he was on his way in again tonight. We were busy, but it shouldn't take too long to evaluate Slim and get him squared away. Now this is where I had to be careful. When medical students or first-year residents rotate through the ER, I have to constantly remind them that even our regulars get sick and you have to be vigilant in your assessment of them, as with every patient. Maybe more so. I have to remind myself of that as well. The temptation, of course, is to blow them off as just the usual and move on to the people who really need your help. Sometimes that approach can be disastrous. It had proved disastrous for another of our ER regulars, Faye Gibbons. Faye was a middle-aged woman who had visited our ER on a frequent basis for years. Her complaint was always nerves, and by the end of her visit, she would invariably ask for a sleeping pill. Sometimes a, a simple Tylenol of tablet would suffice, and she would happily go on her way. At other times, she would become adamant about, adamant about receiving a shot for her condition, becoming quite loud and disruptive. To my knowledge, she had never been diagnosed in our ER with any serious conditions. One evening, she came in by ambulance complaining of her usual nerves. This time, however, she added the complaint of a severe headache pointing to her forehead. 
Dr. Canty, one of my younger partners, was on duty, and like the rest of us, he knew Faye very well. His curiosity exam did not elicit any bothersome findings, and he was prepared to get, try giving her a Tylenol and send her home. He instructed Lori on duty the particular evening to do just that. She went to Faye's room, but immediately came back to the nurse's station. Her medicine cup still contained the sample. I'm not just sure about Faye tonight, she told him. Something's just not right about her. Maybe you better take another look at her. Dr. Candy stopped what he was doing and looked at her. A, a part of him responded to Lori's concern, trusted her proven judgment. A small cloud passed over his previously clear decision, causing him to second-guess himself momentarily. But this quickly passed, and he blew off this interruption. He had seen Faye on many occasions, and it was always the same. No emergency, no serious medical problems. It always just a disposition dilemma. How to get her out of the department with as little trouble as possible. Yet, he respected Lori, partly to placate her and partly to dispel any remainder of that bothersome cloud. He walked over to Faye, was sitting on the edge of her stretcher. Her head was hanging lowly, slightly from side to side. <coughs> Even this posture was part of her usual behavior. Faye, how is a headache? He asked her. Dog, it's killing me. Like something is sticking in the middle of my head. Can't you give me something for it? She pleaded. He reached out and took his head on his hand and one more, making sure her neck was completely supple. It was, and then he looked again in her eyes. Amazing, they were crossed, and she was able to hold him that way. That took real effort. He looked, her look was comical, and he tried desperately to suppress a chuckle. An Academy Award-winning performance, he thought to himself. I'll be right back, he told her, walking out of the room and over to Lori. She's fine, he said, a tone of finality in his voice. Go ahead and give her the time and let her go. Reluctantly, Lori did as instructed, and Faye was soon on her way home. Two days later, she returned to the ER dead. Her autopsy revealed she had a large tumor pressing on the ocular structure in the front of her brain. That was what had caused her eyes to be crossed and, and was what killed her. I was behind the closed curtain of room five when I heard the clicks and wheeze of the automatic ambulance doors open. Then I heard Denton as he confirmed his destination with Lori. Room two, he asked her. Yes, she answered. That's fine. Oh, it was a moan I, would, I could recognize anywhere slim. Oh, my belly. I finished giving instructions to the patient in room five, pulled the curtain aside, and stepped out, turning back to the middle-aged man on the stretcher. I said, go ahead and get dressed. A nurse will be right with you. I pulled the curtain closed behind me. Denton had de deposited Slim on the bed in room two, and Lori was taking his temperature. My eyes caught Slim, and he furiously looked away. BP 110 over 70, Denton informed me, and his pulse is about 90, but a little irregular. He looks okay to me, he added, holding the EMS disc clipboard in his hand while I signed the bottom of the transport sheet. Okay, then, thanks. He pushed the stretcher out in the cubicle and moved toward the nurse's station while I stepped into Slim's room. Lori had placed the blood pressure cuff in its holder and the wall and was attaching two electrodes to his chest, connecting him to the cardiac monitor. 
114 over 72, she told me, turning on the monitor and then making a note on the paper towel that had been hastily placed on the countertop. No fever, 98.4. Ooh, dog, do something, it's killing me. The monitor came to life and it's beep, 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 drew my eyes to the screen, monitor on the wall over the head. I thought immediately of Rita Flowers. Rita was a recently graduate RN, rotating to the ER as part of her hospital orientation. She was a bright young woman, but the jury was still out as to whether she had the judgment to be a good critical care nurse. At this point in her care career, she was, of course, quite green and very naive. On one particular day, she had the good fortune to take care of Slim. He had come in an ambulance with the usual complaint of abdominal pain. She was quite concerned by his read, writing, reading, vociferous demonstration, and she hurriedly checked his vital signs, connecting him to his monitor. Her obvious concern was not lost upon him. She had hastily stepped across to the nurse's station and grabbed the nearest available physician. Doctor, you need to come and see this man, she pleaded now. The ER doctor had looked over the shoulders and readily identified her patient. Turning back to the chart on the counter, he said, It's okay, Rita. I'll be there in a few minutes. She stood there not knowing what to do. She looked around for help, but everyone seemed busy. Racing back to his cubicle, she glanced at the cardiac monitor. It was nice and regular. That was good. Slim continued to moan, her eyes closed, his hands clutching his belly. Slowly, one eyelid crept up, and he waited for his opportunity. Rita returned to the countertop by the side of the stretcher and began making some notes. Slim slowly reached up to his chest and grasped one of the monitor electrodes attached there. He jiggled it forcefully and cried in agony. Oh, he yelled, rolling from side to side. Rita looked at him, and then instinctively at the monitor on the wall, all kinds of wavy lines were crossing the screen. She had never seen anything like that before. That w what was she supposed to do? Call a code? And then suddenly there was a nice, quiet, regular rhythm. Slim's moaning stopped. Rita breathed a sigh of relief. Please get me something for this pain, he pleaded. Rita glanced at the nurse's station and then back at Slim. I'll see what I can do, Mr. Brantley. She returned again to her charting. Slim waited a moment and then again jiggled the electrode. Oh, louder this time. Rita looked at the monitor and there was those same strange undulating waves. His heart was going in and out of some particular chaotic and obviously dangerous rhythm. Something terrible was going to happen if she didn't do something. And then he was quiet and the monitor resumed a steady beep, beep, beep. That was enough. I'll be right back, she told him, stepping towards the entrance of the cubicle on her way to get some help. She was met by Virginia Granger, head nurse of the department. Virginia, our most seasoned veteran, held up her hand, stopping Rita on track. She nodded at Rita and then indicated that the, she needed to follow her back to Slim's bedside. She had been observing the whole affair. Virginia indeed presented an imposing figure. She had turned six, 60 a few weeks earlier, and to her chagrin, she had unsuccessfully kept her age a secret from the ER and staff. Ramrod straight and always wearing a blindly white and overstarched blouse and skirt. There was no mistake her military background. She had 
work in various army hospitals for more than 20 years and had brought that beating, bearing and organizational experience to her ER. And she had brought those same pointed black trimmed nurse's cap she had worn constantly since graduating from nursing school. Virginia stood over slim, hands on hips, lips pursed, and brow furled. She was a menacing sight. Slim Brantley, she said, drawing out his name for effect. His eyes slowly opened and his chin sank to his chest. A schoolboy caught in the act of thumping the head of the girl sitting in front of him. She said momentarily, then looked, took his hand away from the dextrode on his chest and placed it by his side. Slim, I don't want you to do it ever that again, she admonished, ever. Slim, still the little boy said, I won't, I promise. Virginia nodded solemnly, winked at Rita, and then stepped out of the room. Rita just stood there, staring down at Slim for a moment, perplexed and confused. When she finally realized that she, what he had been happening here, she turned to follow Virginia back to the nurse's station. Ma'am, a small voice behind her whispered, Could I get something to eat? I had taken care of Slim for the past 15 years, and amazingly, he never seemed to change. He was six foot four, maybe six five. You couldn't really tell, even when he was well. He slumped over, his long arms dangling by his side, and he was really skinny. He had probably never weighed more than 170 pounds on any occasion. I had seen him, his face was wrinkled, graggy, and his eyes had the smoky appearance of too much booze in over too many years. His teeth, those few left in his head, were yellowish and brown, and a sad repair. His hands were quite remarkable, his fingers were extremely long, as were his ridge and filthy fingernails. The next index middle finger of his right hand were stained a deep and dirty yellow, attesting to a steadfast relationship with his Marlboros. Today, Slim seemed especially unkept. His clothes were layered with the cold weather. He had on two pairs of trousers, the outermost of strain and torn green plaid. His black boots were well-worn, and surprisingly, they matched. More surprisingly, the soles were intact. He had no socks. He wore two light blue sweaters, the outer one at least two sizes smaller than the inner. Under this was what appeared to be an umpire's jersey. Doc, can you give me something for this pain? It's worse than ever. Ooh. I examined Slim, asking him where he had been staying when, when the pains had begun and whether they were occasional symptoms. The usually things I needed to know. All the while, I functionally confirmed that his exam was normal, or at least a normal as it could have for Slim. Convinced nothing serious was going on, I picked up the clipboard for room two and began writing Slim. I said, your belly checks out okay. Doesn't seem to be anything bad going on. Do you think if you had something to eat, you would feel better? Somehow I knew he answered with his question. Slim began to rub the hollow that was his stomach. Well, Doc, you know... That would probably do me a lot of good. The pain seems to have seized a little. What do you think they're serving in the kitchen? I look hopefully and a lot more comfortable. He looked hopefully. I don't know, Slim, but I'll try to find out. Walking over to the nurse station, I pull his curtains closed behind me. Amy, would you call on the down to the cafeteria see if they could send up a tray for Slim? I asked her. Already on his way, she replied, a double. Like me, Amy had helped care for Slim for a lot of years. 
She was 32 years old and one of the best unit secretaries who have been ever sat behind on her stations in the air. And that was just saying a lot. It took a lot of savvy patience and gumption to handle the almost constant barrage of telephone calls and frantic orders being thrown at her. In addition to possessing all of those important traits, she was also a resident NASCAR enthusiast. In quiet moments, she would sometimes remind us of the time she took the hand of Junior Johnson. 30 minutes later, Slim was eating quiet and content. The department had gone busier. A cardiac arrest was on his way. And we had two patients with carbon monoxide poison who had been fortunate enough to make it to the ER to be treated. They would recover without any problems. As I came out of the room three, I walked past Slim's curtain. I was stopped in my tracks by an offensive order. I looked around and then glanced at the nurse's station. Amy was staring at me. She was shaking her head, pinching her nose with one in the hand, pointing accusingly at room two and with the other. Not again, I said to her, exasperated. She simply nodded in response. One of Sin's major problems over the past years was the development of untimely loss of ball control. Un untimely and that it usually occurred in our department right after he had eaten. To his credit, he was almost, he was apologetic. My opportunity was to reflect upon this unwanted circumstance that was cut short by the bursting open of the ambulance entrance doors. Two paramedics hurried a stretcher toward the cardiac room. It was our heart attack. The patient was a 92-year-old man with extensive cancer and advanced Alzheimer's disease. There was nothing we could or should do for this elderly gentleman. I instructed the paramedic to stop chest compressions, and we studied the monitor. Flatline. We watched for a few minutes, but nothing changed. He was gone. He had no family members, and no one would be coming over from the nursing home. Thanking the EMS crew, I started writing up his record and walked back to the nurse's station. As I passed room two, I happened to glance over, and I was able to see through the partial padded curtain. I stopped and watched. Lori was in the room with Slim, gloved. She was cleaning him up from his gastrointestinal mishap, and she was smiling at him. Ma'am, I'm awful sorry for this, he said to her. His eyes lowered, looking away. It's hard for a man to maintain his dignity when he's sitting in the middle of a public place with his pants down. Slim, it's all right, Lori said, smiling. Accidents happen, and just what you're... I'm glad just you're feeling better. She continued to clean him. The order was still terribly strong. Then she finished and she peeled off her gloves and tossed them in the contaminated waste container. She washed her hands in the sink and was stepping towards the entrance of the room when she paused. Stopping by the head of his bed, she put her hand on his shoulder, patting him gently. Slim, she said softly, you need to take care, better care of yourself. You need to stop your drinking. I know, ma'am. I know. It's just hard, he responded, but I'll try. Good, Slim. That's all we want you to do is just try. Lori had been down this road many times with Slim, and yet she was still offered her support, again demonstrating that somebody cared about him. She turned to from the stretcher and took her hand away from his shoulder, and as she did, Slim reached up and gently grabbed her wrist. Lori stopped and looked down on him. Lori, it was the first time he had ever used her name. Thanks. That was all. Thanks. Lori looked at Slim for a moment and then just nodded. He let go of her wrist and she walked out of the room. She came up to where I stood and stopped, realizing I had been watching. A little color came to her face. No words were needed, though 
and she just smiled, nodded, and walked away. That was one of the last times I saw Slim. He died a few years ago, yet I remember this particular ER visit well and Lori's unflinching care for this man. This had been more than just doing her job. It was a manifestation of her spirit and her selfish selflessness. I try to respond more like Lori when I find myself in similar circumstances. Sometimes I succeed, sometimes I don't. But when I don't succeed, when I back from an unpleasant circumstance or a patient who is less than attractive, I at least realize my shortcomings. Maybe that's the first step. <laughs> sometimes I succeed, sometimes I don't. But when I don't succeed, when I back away from an unpleasant circumstances or a patient who is less than attractive, I at least realize my shortcomings. Maybe that's the first step. No, shortcomings, that's the uh, sixth step in the 12-step program. But pretty cool, pretty good story. And uh, Matthew 25, 40 says, the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of these least of these brothers of mine, you did it for me. Amen. What a, what a story about compassion. I didn't realize the ER, they had that kind of, uh, that kind of things going on in there. That was an amazing story. All right. I hope you like it. Thank you very much. And the book is called Angels on the ER, Inspiring True Stories from an Emergency Room Doctor. Well, you know, I have to add my two cents in. I used to have uh, have some friends through the church that worked in ER and I lived close by and I used to ask her, do you ever get any alcohol cases? And she goes, yeah, we get them once in a while. So they started calling me. One of the closed hospitals says, hey, there's a family in here, and the young kid has got poison, and they're, you can come over here and cons console them. And, and when I get over there, they would, I would be known as the man from Alcoholic Anonymous. I was not the man from La Mancha. I was the man from Alcoholic Anonymous. It was a pretty cool... Uh, title and I prayed with some families and then in the other hospital I had the uh, the ER call me they said we have a patient here and he's only 28 years old and his heart is working at 25% capacity and, and he speaks Spanish would you like to talk to him and yes I said let me talk to him so I started talking to Jose we talked for about 15-20 minutes I tried to convince Jose about Alcoholism Anonymous and how to stop drinking and so forth and prayed with him. And uh, and he just basically says, I just can't stop drinking. It's just, it's just there's no way. At, at 28 years old, I, I called, they called me again, and I go, hey, what happened to Jose? And he goes, oh, he died. Like, he just, like, he took a vacation. He died. So that was pretty sad. The guy was so young and such a tender voice and locked into alcoholism. So please don't take your relatives funny or cute that they're drinking and excessively with half gallons and playing uh, Texas Hold'em, all the, all the teenagers. Make a stop of it. Make a big deal of it. Pay them if you have to, but take them to 12-step meetings and stay with them. They're really listening, 
and it takes about five, six meetings for the words to seep in. They will listen, they will catch attention, and they will change. And you must believe in the older ones that are drinking all their lives and believe they will change. Do the same to them. Ask them to get them to the meetings. You can do it. I believe in you. God bless you and have a great day. Have a great evening. Take care.